In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the son of the late Dr. Frederick Elzefon, the author of How to Build a Flying Saucer and Save the Planet, discusses his father's anti-gravitic formula. The speed of light is only a, an illusory barrier, and if you can reduce the mass of your object to zero, well, that pretty much takes out the problematic part of the speed of light equation, namely that its mass would increase to infinity as it approached the speed of light. This podcast is supported by the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Check out this amazing new podcast. If you love rock and roll and you love unsolved mysteries, true crime, the paranormal, and strange synchronicities, you're going to love the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight, 12 a.m. Eastern, heard exclusively on the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. 
revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. I received an email from an inventor friend out in Spokane, Washington, who runs this amazing energy science and technology conference uh, out there every summer. And he told me there's this guy you really ought to meet and speak with. His father was the late Dr. Frederick Elzefon, who wrote the book, How to Build a Flying Saucer and Save the Planet. And back in the 80s, Dr. Elzefon came up with a formula for anti-gravity and he tested it under scientific conditions and demonstrated that an object lost mass, which may not sound real sexy, but that's anti-gravity folks. But he couldn't get anyone interested in this technology and he didn't want the military to abscond with it. So there it sits. Now his son, David Elzefon, is here for the first installment of what will be an ongoing series on anti-gravitics. These won't be consecutive episodes, uh, but we'll begin today talking about his father's work and his anti-gravity theory and technology. David Elzefon is a technical writer and had a ringside seat during the development of the technology and actively searched for investors in Silicon Valley from 1981 through 2012. In the six years following his father's death, David has ramped up efforts to publicize his father's discoveries with the publication of two books, Gravity Control with Present Technology and The Top 10 UFO Riddles, Solutions from Science. More than anyone alive, he understands the theoretical basis of the technology and why it is met with such massive resistance from establishment physics, in spite of being endorsed in a 1960 report by the U.S. Air Force and the overwhelmingly favorable impression his father, who received his doctorate at Cal Berkeley, made upon knowledgeable critics. David Olsafon, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Oh, I'm just fine, uh, Richard. Thanks for having me. Where to begin? Let's, let's begin with your father. Tell me a, a little bit about who he was. Well, he's really the focus of attention here. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. He, um, he was a physicist, and uh, he, uh, he got his Ph.D. at Cal Berkeley. Um, he's, he studied under Robert Oppenheimer and um, David Bohm and Victor Lenzen and uh, Griffith C. Evans, the namesake of Evans Hall of mathematics and uh, after after leaving the university he went to aerospace and he had a 30-year career in aerospace and as far as I'm concerned that's where the story picked up because I was born in 1950 and I became aware that he was doing something pretty unusual when um, I used to sit in his study and I'd see him typing equations on an old royal portable typewriter and uh, I asked him what he was doing, and he said back in 1958 that he was trying to trying to make it easy for mankind to get into space, into um, and he didn't think rockets would ever do it. And that's exactly the situation we're in nowadays. So he had a solution back then, and it was to control gravity. And um, I would say, as a result of his his uh, somewhat um, quiet, reserved, and secretive character, you've never heard of him. And most people have never heard of his work. But I was an armchair witness to the entire story through decades and decades. And um, 
in my opinion, at least, because of experimental evidence that I'll tell you about presently, he succeeded. And the technology has actually been on record since 1981, uh, right out before the public, anybody could download it. But nobody was particularly interested in studying it. And that's another part of the story. Um, when you talk about uh, conspiracies, uh, there was a Galileo-like uh, conspiracy, you might say, uh, against my father's work. And that is that he skirted the um, accepted uh, theory of uh, gravitation, which is Einstein's general theory of relativity. And instead, he, he didn't start over from scratch. What he did was he built out on the special theory of relativity, Einstein's special theory of relativity. And from that, he derived a unified field uh, theory which of which the gravitation theory was only a part. So uh, it took him a long time to figure out how to uh, develop an applied technology from that, and the clue came actually from a UFO sighting that uh, I told him about in 1973, and uh, from that he reverse-engineered it just from um, a very brief list of data that was collected by the Air Force. And um, in 1981, he filed a patent, and he he put he went on record with the entire technology in 1981 at the AIAA 17th Joint Propulsion Conference. You can still download the paper. Um, and uh, he did that because he didn't want his uh, invention to become classified. He'd already filed the patent. His patent attorney assured him the patent would be granted. And he, <clears throat> pardon me, he was involved in the defense industry. And there's a lot of background on that. But secrecy was a part of his life and the family growing up uh, ever since I could remember and he didn't want it to be classified. There was an experience going back to 1960 when he was interviewed by the uh, Air Force, uh, the Foreign Technology Division at Ames, Ames Research near Moffett Field. And uh, the Air Force colonel he talked to said, well, we'd like to start a research project, but, and at this time there was no technology in view. But he said, uh, it will be, have to be classified higher than the Manhattan Project and in fact, you might not qualify for a clearance high enough to work on your own project. And my dad just catch 22, except for real. And my dad just walked out on the meeting. So um, he was definitely afraid that that the technology would become classified and and uh, go into a black vault, and he'd never see it again until it came out on the back of a B-2 bomber or something like that. Right. And he didn't want that. Yeah. So we we should point so, out this is Dr. Frederick. Elzevon, how how did he, how did he continue uh, his his research um, without the military just coming in and scooping everything up? I mean, we've seen that happen before. I think he expected the military to come in and scoop everything up uh, at any moment uh, throughout the rest of his life, and. You know, after he died, I mean, the, the, the paranoia was so thick that I, I really expected them to show up and take all of his papers from his study the way they did apparently did with Tesla. But nothing like that happened. And um, there have been hints that the dark world was interested in what he was doing. And this would require me going into some anecdotes, which I, I'd be glad to do. But um, to continue with the narrative on his research, uh, he... After the 1981 paper was published, he thought that the university would come to his door 
and they would want to follow up with research on his technology. But um, there was not a peep. As he put it, it was like dropping a feather into the Grand Canyon and waiting for an echo. Nothing happened. And after a year of that, he, uh, uh, and mind you, he was regarded as a world-class authority in several subjects. It was only, and I emphasize only in the area of gravitation and unified field theory that he encountered this pulpy wall of resistance. And uh, some very weird things happened. But anyway... Um, he decided to uh, approach the Department of Energy, and he wrote out a proposal, and uh, they turned it down. They they did cop make a copy of his proposal, and God knows where it went after that, but he didn't hear anything from them. And uh, then he started looking for millionaires and billionaires, and I was working in Silicon Valley, and, you know, I started shaking the tree, looking for help there, and there were some interesting anecdotes about that. But um, nothing was forthcoming. And then, to get right to the point, um, after 13 years of frustration, uh, some friends of his got together and they, they managed to cobble together the equipment in a sort of garage operation that was in the basement of a well-known university. And the only reason I'm not saying the name of it is because who knows, maybe one of them is still working there or something. I don't want to bring any heat down on them, but uh, it was um, the experiment was set up and uh, it went off uh, like a charm. It worked the first time they threw the switch, and what they observed was about an 80% weight loss in a specimen of aluminum subjected to the fields, the prescribed fields from the 1981 paper, and then there was another rush of uh, optimism and hope. And the rest of the story is that by a series of unfortunate events, uh, the technology was never mainstreamed. And when he died in 2012, I took it upon myself to to um, carry the torch again back to academia. And I met with the same wall of resistance that he always met with. And so I went from there to the space uh, civilian space agencies and met with the same wall of resistance. I even went to Hollywood looking for support for a documentary. But I found that, you know, in the intervening years, people's attention spans had um, dropped to about 20 or 30 seconds. And this was the kind of story that didn't, that had a kind of learning curve attached. And I, uh, maybe it's my communication, you know, deficiencies, but I couldn't get through to any producers that this would be a good idea. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, let me just... Let me just uh, jump in if I could at this point, because sure. uh, 
I mean, this is absolutely mind-blowing stuff. Uh, now, for a, a layman like myself, uh, and many people listening, uh, yes. probably have about a, I'm guessing on average, about a grade seven or eight science background. So how, how would you explain the, the principle behind, uh, what, can we call it anti-gravitics? Uh, if you're thinking of electrogravitics, I hesitate to imply some connection between the work of T. Townsend Brown, Robert Searle, and, and some of the others, uh, Tesla, for example, and what my father did. My father's work came straight out of mainstream physics. Uh, you, if you want to trace the intellectual lineage of it, you go back to Bertrand Russell, to Albert Einstein, and then to his professors, uh, especially Victor Lenzen, and then to his own thinking. And Richard Feynman was the one who inspired ah, yes. him to publish his first paper. So we're not so, talking about an ion wind or an ion thruster here then? No, absolutely not. And by the way, everything I'm about to tell you is on public record and absolutely verifiable by any scientist who wants to take the trouble to study it. <laughs> and the irony of this, uh, Richard, is that over the years, I don't. Th I think if I explain it to your audience right now in the simplest terms, they will know more about it than the most uh, most advanced physics professor um, out there. Because I took it to many of them at Stanford, and so did Fred. Um, I took it to uh, universities around the country. None of them would even read it. And it all has to do with this... Uh, weird situation surrounding gravity, gravitational research. Now, as I'm telling you this, I'm saying the probability is probably 90% plus that he succeeded. But all I'm really seeking is for somebody out there to run the 1994 experiments again and, um, and prove it. Uh, it uh, the, the equipment required, and this is very interesting, is probably sitting on the shelf in almost any physics lab in the country right now. Um, it could be put together by a physics professor and a couple of grad students in six weeks. So um, now I'm going to tell you what it is. And uh, as I do, I, I have a punchline for this story that's quite amazing. Um, okay, first of all, in order to, to build a, a, a gravity control device, you have to understand gravity. Otherwise, you won't know what levers to pull or you know what? How to, especially how to make the connection between electromagnetism and the gravitational force? Because as any good physicist will tell you, these two force fields can interpenetrate each other with absolutely no effect on each other whatsoever. Now, in electrogravitics, we see that whatever they're doing, and I, I, I want to be clear that I don't quite understand what they're doing, but it takes hundreds of thousands of volts. It takes mercury. Uh, uh, liquid mercury and uh, spinning at 50,000 RPMs. What I'm about to tell you is no more complicated than a microwave oven. And it requires the same amount of power, wall current, to uh, obtain the effect. And in a moment, I'm going to explain how it works like a pump. So, in fact, you can get an enormous effect uh, over time as gravity is drained out of the vicinity of your vehicle simply by a low-grade current like wall current. Okay, here's how it works. Um, first, gravity. Gravity is kind of, the way my father views it, is, is a kind of a residual effect from the mere existence of particles. Now, he did research at the cyclotron. He experimented with elementary particles. He published his research in the physical review, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, he views the particle as a 
not as a uh, a solid thing like a billiard ball, but kind of a an energy uh, knot, a knot of condensed energy. And surrounding that knot of condensed energy, there's another field which is kind of like a halo, and it extends off to infinity. And occupying that halo are what we call now presently virtual processes, which are if you can imagine it, it's charged particles that come into existence for a, a fraction of a billionth of a second and then disappear. And this kind of activity surrounds every single elementary particle. Are those now, anything you, like uh, uh, neutrinos? Uh, neutrinos are actually surrounded by, ele- uh, by virtual processes. Ah, okay. Yeah, you see, th- they're so fine that we can only infer their existence existence from certain experiments in black body radiation, for example, but now I'm getting into jargon. I, I want to avoid jargon. Let's just imagine that there's this halo around each elementary particle, but when it when you get the number of elementary particles that you get in a planet, uh, you get a blizzard of it surrounding it that extends off into space and interacts with this same sort of cloud that surrounds um, other planetary bodies or stars, for example, and it's the reason there is action at a distance between the Earth and the Sun and the Moon and all these things. They're interconnected by this elementary particle uh, uh, substrata. Now, um, the reason he looked at elementary particles is simply that wherever you see gravitation, wherever you have mass, so he didn't look for gravitons because suppose gravity was attributable to gravitons. Well, then you would have differing amounts of gravity where you had differing concentrations of graviton particles, or you would have different amounts of gravity where there were differences in temperature. It has nothing to do with that. It has only to do with the quantity of mass. So it has to be something that all mass has in common. And what does it have in common? Elementary particles. That's why he went there, logically speaking. Einstein went in another direction, and um, that's why... There isn't any applied technology uh, coming out of the general theory of relativity. Another whole subject area. Forget <laughs> about it for now. Um, I want to tell you about the technology now that I've explained. Oh, I haven't really explained. When you overlap to the um, virtual process clouds of, say, two elementary particles, as far as the particle on the left is concerned, say, it's picked up a little mass where these two clouds overlap, and that produces an uh, a disequilibrium, which can only be compensated by shrinking the diameter slightly of uh, particle, uh, the particle on the left. And the same thing by symmetrical reasoning is going on with the particle on the right. So they move closer together in order to shrink the diameter between them. That's all it is. Now, when you magnify this on a planetary scale, you get an attractive force that's inversely proportional to the distance between the objects. And this can all be shown uh, mathematically, and it is shown in his papers. Okay, now, of course, I'm glossing over a ton of detail. There are a lot of physicists out there shaking their heads right now. This can't be true. You have to look at the papers to see the full justification for this. And, uh, of course, I can't do it justice in this kind of a discussion, but I want your audience to be able to visualize it. And the, the neat thing about this theory is that you can visualize it, uh, like, just like good old-fashioned physics, you know, when... When I was a kid growing up, you'd see the the let's see the ping pong balls on the billiard table with the mouse traps. That was good visualizable physics. But now what you see is this badminton racket with a uh, or net with a planet sitting on it, 
And that's what you are told has to do with the gravitational field. And they're trying to show you curved space-time. Right, right. It's, it's an abstract concept. It's not a physical concept. But in the minds of physics, uh, phys physicists nowadays, it is a physical concept. And so they have to kind of break the spell of that kind of thinking and go back to more classically oriented physics in order to understand my father's theory. Now, here's anti-gravity. Um, um, okay. What you want to do is very similar to cryogenics. In cryogenics, there is a process where you cause the kinetic energy of molecules to drain off by, let's say you, you set them up so that they're all spinning on the same axis by a magnetic field, the molecules. You use paramagnetic molecules. That means that they're affected by a magnetic field, but they don't retain any magnetism when you take away the field. That's all it means. Okay. Okay. So they're standing up, and then you let them go. Suddenly, you shut off the field. And their surroundings are busily moving in random motion, whereas they're not moving randomly. They're all standing up and uh, on one axis. So these surroundings batter them into motion again. But in doing that, they lose energy. The surroundings lose energy, see? And you repeat this cycle over and over and over again until the surroundings have lost so much energy that you are within a tenth of a degree of absolute zero. It works in cryogenics and it apparently works in um, gravity control. That is the secret of gravity control, except you're doing it at a subatomic level. And um, you're doing it to the virtual processes. You, you <laughs> um, remember that each uh, particle is surrounded by this cloud of virtual processes. If you put the elementary particle, say an electron, in a... Um, magnetic field, it will pre it will precess or spin like a top around the direction of that magnetic field. And then if you um, blast it sideways with um, a microwave field, all of the electrons will tip over very suddenly and then you release the field, the microwave field, and you can leave the magnetic field in place that really doesn't matter. Um, and the virtual processes, well actually the nuclei that the electrons are near will tip over by conservation of angular momentum. So now you have uh, the entire particle, well, it's the entire atom, is oriented. And so are the virtual processes. They've been, they've been given a directional property by this process. I know I'm losing some listeners, but um, maybe if you listen to this podcast more than once, you'll pick up on what I'm saying or you can absolutely check it out in, in the book I just wrote. I have a gravity made simple chapter in which I'm repeating uh, everything that I'm saying here. But I'm going to have to speed through to the end because there's a, a punchline. Um, you repeat this, well, the surrounding virtual process cloud of the Earth loses energy, creating randomness in these ordered virtual processes that have been ordered by this uh, sideways blast of microwave energy. Um, this process is a well-known process, by the way. It's called dynamic nuclear orientation. Uh, there's only one book written about it. It was written in 1960, and my dad just ran across it by accident, and that's what triggered his insight. Uh, anyway, dynamic nuclear orientation is the name of the process. It is pulsed dynamic nuclear orientation that is gravity control. That's it. 
Now, as you repeat this pulsing process, you are draining more and more energy from the gravitational field in the vicinity of the vehicle, and it's being held in a cloud outside of the vehicle. This is uh, another visualizable metaphor that you can use, and eventually you will drive the um, gravitational pull on the vehicle down to zero. Um, also, you will, um, you will also drain the inertia of the vehicle down to zero because these random electrodynamic processes are also responsible for inertia. Uh, and that's why inertia has always been recognized as being exactly proportional to mass, just like gravitational pull. But it's been a mystery why they're connected. Nobody has had a physical reason for their connection, and you will find that reason in, the, um, in my father's papers. Okay, now here's the punchline. Are we still connected? We are. <laughs> okay, yes. good. Listing yeah, because I, I, okay, great. Um, remember I said that, that his insight was uh, initially uh, triggered by a UFO sighting. Now, the data that I referred to included, it was taken by a B-47 on a re electronic re countermeasures uh, reconnaissance mission over the Gulf of uh, Mexico. And it was, the plane was uh, buzzed by a UFO that was, according to the pilot, as big as a barn. There were actually nine independent channels that confirmed this sighting. It almost appeared in the Condon Committee report, but at the last minute they yanked it out. It was Condon case number five. Um, they took a measurement of the frequency of the microwave field. They were detecting huge bursts of microwave radiation from the UFO, and it was pulsed. And they took a measurement of the frequency of the pulse rate. Um, and the, the field was being cut off rapidly. Remember what I said about cryogenics. It was this image of this pulsed square wave coming from this UFO that started my dad thinking. And finally, after a lifetime of study, he put it all together and came up with gravity control technology, which is essentially exactly the same thing. Now, you might think... Well, if he explained gravity control on the basis of something observed in UFOs, perhaps his theory would also explain some of the weird things we've observed about UFO flight. Indeed, and yes. It yeah, it does. Uh, I uh, made a collection of uh, 10 uh, UFO riddles that nobody's been able to solve that his theory does solve, including crop circles, by the way. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David Elzefon is here, the son of the late Dr. Frederick Elzefon, the discoverer of real anti-gravity science. Let me see if I can... Um, make sure I'm following along here. So okay. what we're saying is that gravity can be modified around an object or around, let's say, a vehicle, for example. Yes. So if you place mass um, in a magnetic field mm -hmm. and then you, you expose it to... Uh, microwaves this was a what did you call it a square a square wave a square wave yes a square wave about three gigahertz yes so then what that that what that what happens is that the 
the molecules in the mass or the object that's in this magnetic field, their, 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 their spin is, is modified. The spin of the, of the molecules or the atoms in that mass, the, orient, the spin orientation is modified, correct? Well, let me put it another way. You're using the electrons as leverage to, to cause the, the um, nuclei uh, that they surround to turn over and become oriented. And when they do that, you're also penetrating the virtual process cloud that, uh, that penetrates the nuclei. And your goal is to orient the virtual process cloud because that is the same as the gravitational um, cloud of the Earth. There is no difference. If you were looking at a particle as, say, a, um, a um, bell curve, if you could visualize a bell curve, and you know the bell curve is very thick in the center, and then it shades off to the side where it gets thinner and thinner and then you know disappears at infinity. It's that skirt, that thin layer at the end, yes, which is absolutely the same stuff as the particle, but that's the um, that's where the gravitational uh, field exists. It's not different from the particle itself. However, if you were magically able to shrink yourself down and look at a nuclei, what you would see would be a kind of a uh, cloud of these uh, virtual processes surrounding the elementary particle. Right. Those are the target of our uh, technique here. And we're trying to get every all the virtual process clouds oriented by taking advantage of their um, temporary electrical um, pol polarity. Because as I said, they are... Uh, virtual particles, they have um, their like little electrons and positrons and so forth, and they will be affected by a magnetic field at right. that level. So there's a, you're, right. you're affecting the symmetry uh, of the mass and the, 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 the gravity field. You're, yeah, there's a certain amount of kinetic energy stored in the gravitational field, which we measure on a gross scale by, you know, um, you drop a ball and it has kinetic energy and it hits the Earth. That's a gross effect of the uh, things that are going on in the elementary particles, of which that object is composed and so is the Earth. Everything is the same. So the mass can either lose or gain weight. Absolutely. It can lose or gain weight during the driving part of the microwave pulse the weight will increase. And this is the most significant thing that occurred in the experiment because they had um, they had charts, and I, the charts are in the book, uh, Gravity Control with Present Technology. Here I am plugging my book, but they are in there for anybody to look at. And you will see that there's a spike in the weight of the sample object just before it starts dropping off precipitously. And the moment when it starts to drop off precipitously is when, just after you shut off the uh, microwave pulse and there's nothing there. Uh, that's when the gravitational field of the Earth is doing work to randomize the virtual process cloud of the particles that make up the hull of the vehicle, say, or in this case, the very small sample of aluminum on which this experiment was performed. Why aluminum, by the way? Because it has a uh, long... Uh, orientation time much longer than other substances. Um, the thermal decay thermal decay is a problem in this process. That is, heat will cause the uh, nuclei to become disoriented. 
And you have to have a kind of a, a molecule that will hold on to its orientation longer than the average organic molecule or uh, the average metal. For example, iron has a very rapid thermal decay time, but we include iron in the aluminum in order to, because iron reacts strongly to a magnetic field. Now, I'm building to a point. Crashed UFOs, what are they made of? Uh, aluminum with uh, particles of iron in them. So, uh, or sometimes magnesium or chromium, which have the same property. So, um, this parallel this parallels exactly the the technology that my dad hypothesized in 1981, and you can read it in his paper, his 1981 paper. Um, so he open sourced this by by publishing the by publishing the formula. Oh, he. <laughs> This paper, 1981 paper, uh, is 33 pages long, and most of it would be decipherable only to a PhD in physics. And uh, but it's the first part of the paper, part one, where he describes the um, the uh, gravity gravity control process. That if you work hard at it, anybody could follow it. Uh, I tried to well, very often, practically every time I went to see my dad, I asked him for what what he called the paper napkin lecture. Uh, he thought that any physical theory that you couldn't get across with some hand waving and some sketches on a paper napkin probably wasn't a good theory. So I would ask for his explanation of gravity, and the explanation that he gave me is pretty much like the one I've just given you and the one that appears in the book. It, it can be understood by anybody who takes the trouble to understand it. It doesn't require mathematics. It only requires an ability to visualize things that are happening on a very, very, very small scale. Right. As you were describing this theory of gravity, I was thinking about that old axiom that all boats rise with the tide. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, that's how I'm visualizing it. You know, when you when, when the, uh, the the tide rises and lowers, it doesn't matter. You know what size the the boat. Uh, they all they all rise and lower together. Uh, I don't know if that helps anyone or not. But um, so, what is the ratio from uh, aluminum to uh, to iron? Oh, uh, you know, let me see. I believe it's there's very little iron, um, but the important thing is that it, it it's colloidal, that it's embedded in the aluminum, and primarily you you make the you make the hull of a of aircraft out of aluminum. I mean, it's just a great building material and. Your, your flying saucer would be made of the same stuff. It's very strong structurally. It's also lightweight. But uh, you don't need a lot of iron. So in the experiment that, that he performed, yes. describe what that looked like. Sure. Um, the most expensive part of the apparatus was something they call an EPR, an electronic, uh, let's see, an electron paramagnetic, uh, para, bleh, clear my throat, an electron paramagnetic resonance device. It is used in assaying organic molecules, and you'll find it in most uh, organic chemistry labs around the country. It is very expensive, however. The the one they used, I believe, was a primitive one, and it cost $180,000. There are 
I, I've looked into the price tag on building a custom one for just for this experiment. There's a company called Joel, uh, J-E-O-L who would do it for a quarter of a million dollars. So that is the most expensive part of it. The rest of it is pretty much um, sur uh, sur surplus store stuff uh, to coordinate the uh, pulses, microwave pulse. So if you looked at the apparatus, what you would have seen is a workbench, uh, an EPR underneath the workbench, uh, the sample in, in between the, um, the um, magnets that make up the EPR, and then uh, on top of the, uh, there was a scale, a biomation scale that was keeping track of the weight of the sample. Um, the sample was held in a waveguide so that you could, uh, you could blast it with microwaves and not uh, blast everyone in the room, but concentrate it right on the sample. And uh, let's see. Okay, so to review, there was uh, an EPR unit underneath the workbench, and on top of the workbench there was a uh, scale. That was a Mettler scale that was uh, that was able to track down to 0.01 milligrams change weight changes. That was connected to a computer, and um, it w the computer was the only digital piece of equipment, and it was reading analog data. So what you'll see in the book is um, charts that show uh, show the per weight performance of the uh, sample as it was sitting in the uh, waveguide in between the plates of the uh, EPR device. I think that in the future, I actually put a sketch in uh, gravity control uh, with present technology of what I think might be a better design, where you would you put the um, radar unit or the microwave unit inside of a sphere made of aluminum, and you would connect that to the scale through a uh, rod or a plastic you know rod that held it up uh, that would go through the workbench and then down to the scale, and you would, I, I think that you would get a uh, more of an effect that way and also would be more impressive because the thing would float time and again when I would tell people about the experiment they would not be impressed by these charts though that to me they're Nobel Prize stuff uh, instead they wanted to see something float especially in Hollywood they didn't want to they wanted to be guaranteed that uh, at the end of the documentary series we'd make something float and so I said yeah sure we'll make something float but to tell you the truth, I was only 95% uh, sure that it would float. <laughs> but you were, but the experiment was demonstrating a loss of weight in the mass. Uh, a loss. Well, my father probably would have said a loss of mass because okay. what what is it that mass? That's well, right. Good point. Mass. Good point. A loss of mass. Yes. Right. And here's another interesting thing. Um, within his uh, unified field theory, the speed of light is not a barrier. Um, it's an apparent barrier, but to the people or the the object traveling at the speed of light, it could break on through that other side, even though uh, we might lose track of it. But the um, the speed of light is only a an illusory barrier, and if you can reduce the mass of your object to zero, well, that pretty much takes out the problematic part of the speed of light equation, namely that its mass would increase to infinity as it approached the speed of light, right? So um, I think he never said this, and it's my conjecture, but I think that this might be the key to faster-than-light travel as well. Now, if you're inside the vehicle, uh, so the mass, the, uh, the mass is being reduced, does that include... What about the occupants of the vehicle? Yes. Um, the occupants of the vehicle have to be protected from the microwave pulse. But they're going to be wearing, um, and this is often reported about the occupants of UFOs, kind of a aluminum fiber uh, suit. Now, 
what that's going to do is conduct nuclear orientation to their bodies. And if, if, you, if you've seen it, uh, seen a number of UFO encounters reported, um, classically the UFO uh, pulls up off the, uh, the ground, hovers there wobbling a lot and, and spinning slowly. That's the warm-up phase when it's eliminating mass or eliminating the pull of gravity. And then it gets very steady all of a sudden and takes off like a rocket or faster than a rocket, you know, Mach 10 instantly. And the reason it can do that is because the inertia has been canceled on the occupants as well as the vehicle. And a very small force will accelerate the vehicle tremendously. So... Um, we just, we're going to have to obviously do a, a part two and probably a part three here. Um, mm-hmm. But just to, to wrap this up, because we're almost out of time. Okay. Uh, the, the, so this was open, open sourced. Uh, yes. is, is anyone trying to build a prototype, to your knowledge? Well, they've had 37 years to build it. Anybody anywhere in the world could have built it. But I have a suspicion that if that was done... It went into the black vault of that country, whatever it was, because it was probably overseen by the military, wherever it was, wherever it was done. I, I really, uh, regrettably, this experiment should have been done in a university in 1987, and this is another, I mean, 81, and this is another point I'd like to make. You see, if it had been mainstreamed in 1981, we probably wouldn't be seeing climate change as a problem today, because... If you had everybody using a vehicle that that had gravity control, it would not only greatly reduce the use of fossil fuel, but you could substitute, uh, you know, a toy turbojet onto a vehicle the size of an SUV, and it would fly at Mach 2 without any problem at all in the Earth's atmosphere, and um, it would the byproducts of such a, an engine would be um, water vapor instead of uh, fossil fuel. Now, let me say something about fossil fuel. And this is important because I expect the <clears throat> big oil to be an early adopter of this technology as soon as it moves off the uh, page of science fiction and into the page of mainstream science, uh, which is inevitably going to happen at some point, uh, providing that it works. I always put in that disclaimer. Um, anyway, big oil has a problem. They're running out of oil. They're poisoning the planet. They're very unpopular with people except for the nice things you can do by burning fossil fuel. If there was a way out that was even more profitable than what they were doing, well, that's all, the only thing that matters to them, right? They, they want to be able to tell their shareholders, we made more money this quarter than the last quarter. It doesn't matter how they make it. And if they could abandon oil, they could look like heroes, see? And I have a way for them to abandon oil and make more money than ever before. Maybe you want to save that for part two. <laughs> it's just remarkable to me that someone like uh, Elon Musk, not interested, Robert Bigelow, uh, not interested. I approached, I approached both of them. Um, couldn't get in the front door. Uh, there was a uh, at Bigelow's agency. There was uh, there was a chief scientist who said, "Oh, I studied your theory in high school, and there's nothing to it. There, we have much better theories now." Hmm. That's as far as it got with uh, Robert Bigelow, and um, it's a tragedy. I mean, the the people working to protect their jobs and people working to protect their status within organizations have blocked the entry, just right the entrance door 
for this technology since 1981, 37 years. Right. I, I have a this friend, a, a friend, an acquaintance, I should say, in Utah who developed technology that could disassociate carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, the carbon molecules, and basically uh, you'd have nothing but water and, and inert gases coming out the tailpipe. Mm-hmm. And Volkswagen uh, heard him on Coast to Coast with me. They, they wanted to meet with him. But again, same thing. They're, it's like these massive organizations are like synthetic beasts, and they are not equipped on the inside to deal with innovative technology coming from the outside. They just don't have the whatever... Uh, the systems in place to deal with it. It's, it is a tragedy. Uh, final point, And that is yes. this, May I say this one thing. Just yes. Yes. Uh, after my dad hung up the phone with uh, whatever Biglow's agency was, he said, well, he was relieved that his uh, theory had finally been uh, given a review by experts, even if they were only high school students. <laughs> Indeed. The other thing that jumps out at me is, is yes. that, UFO propulsion, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about civilizations that are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years more advanced. They could be just a hundred years more advanced. Potentially, you know. The metallurgy suggests that they're engineering down to the uh, atomic level, and that's beyond us right now. So, But we could build one. Hell, we could build these. We could mass produce uh, flying saucers. And we, uh, and we will talk about that, how we can do that uh, when next we speak. David, a real pleasure. Oh, likewise, uh, Richard. Uh, thanks for all the good questions, and I'm looking forward to our next uh, uh, conversation. David Elsafon. Now, he will be back very soon to solve some of the top UFO riddles. And this will be, as I mentioned earlier, an ongoing series. Now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs... Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, episode 90, You Won't Believe What's in Your Water. Stephen Settlemeyer explains how he creates the world's purest H2O. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting.